Well, thank you, worship ministry, for leading us in worship today. It's good to be with you this morning, and I'm grateful to see you. My little wife is back today, so honey, welcome back to church. And uh, glad you're here. And um, but our uh, our youth choir, Chi Alpha, led us in worship in the first service, and uh, they did a beautiful job and headed to Amarillo to uh, lead in a mission trip there. And uh, so we'll be in prayer for them. But I'm glad to be with you here in this service. If you've been with us at all this year, you know that our theme for 2022 is re, dot, dot, dot. And we're exploring our biblical and theological vocabularies together, analyzing, exploring the words that begin with that prefix re. So for the summer, our theme is recreate. Little play on words that we're hoping you'll be involved in some of the recreational ministries this summer at our church and there are opportunities for that. You can find those uh, information out in the Charlie Hamill Welcome Center <clears throat> or you can go to fbca.org slash recreation and find out more about what's available for you as we enjoy this time together. We're studying the book of Ecclesiastes here on Sunday morning. I've had several of you comment to me about our daily Bible readings. I've had questions like, how did this get in the Bible? Um, and as I said to someone this morning, I didn't write the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible. But this material has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and has found its way into our canon. And so there's a message from God there for us. And that's what we're looking for uh, in our journey together as a church family. So today I've entitled the message, um, Wise Guys. Before I get to that, just the core essence, I think, of this book is really about paradise lost. That's really what this author is lamenting and offering his insights about. And the way I would put that, there are Edenic echoes. In other words, the, the Garden of Eden, it can, it can still be heard somewhat, and they abound in creation, these echoes do. However, just the fallen nature of it all often drowns out these echoes with what I would call discordant tones of brokenness. So when you're reading Ecclesiastes, the Koholeth, as he calls himself, the preacher, he's offering you his take. This is not, a, um, not necessarily a theological treatise per se, it is actually a, a chronicling, a reflection of his experiences as he makes his way through life and comes to grips with these discordant tones, if you will, and the evidence of brokenness all around him. So with that said, let's look at Ecclesiastes 2, if you have your copy of the Old Testament, and the message today I've entitled, Wise Guys, and we'll begin in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 2, where the writer has shared this with us. He says, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will also will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. 
The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So on that optimistic note, I thought we might have a conversation this morning. Um, So here's where I want us to begin today. Just with this simple acknowledgement. Wisdom is no joke. The, the writer, the Koholeth, the preacher, he tells us in chapter two, and we looked at this last Sunday morning, you'll remember he says, I, I said to myself, I will test you with pleasure. And so he experiences all these opportunities for pleasure as a human being. And then he comes to the end of it, and here's his conclusion, verse 11 of chapter two. He says, when I surveyed everything that I'd done, all of my hard work, He said, actually, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, and nothing was gained under the sun, he says. And then he says, in our text today, he says, then I turned my attention, my thoughts, my energy towards wisdom and folly. What an interesting combination, wisdom and foolishness, if you will. So, the opposites of one another. He decided to address, think about, explore both both ends of the spectrum. Well, here's his conclusion there though. Look at verse 13. Wisdom is better than folly, he says. Well, in other words, wisdom is to be preferred. Well, what is wisdom? Wisdom stated very simply is that quality of experience and knowledge and good judgment intersecting in a person's life. Can I just say, has there ever been a time in our society when we needed wisdom more than right now? Lord help us. We need wisdom. Wisdom is it's a word that we use in a complimentary way. Um, those men who in the ancient world studied and read and prepared themselves looking for a particular dawning of a new day and all of a sudden they saw this star in the east and they decided to just follow it. It led them all the way to Bethlehem and we refer to them as the wise men. In other words, they they acted with good judgment. They, they blended together their knowledge and their experience, and, and we refer to them today as wise. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. The Bible is interested in God-given wisdom. In fact, when you look at the Bible, the Bible is actually a library. It's a collection of different types of literature. And there is one entire section of literature in our Bibles that scholars have just chosen to refer to as wisdom literature. It's a collection of five books, the book of Job, the book of the Psalms, the book of the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, what we're reading, and the Song of Songs, or sometimes it's called the Song of Solomon. Those five books comprise wisdom literature in our Old Testament. And basically, the point of wisdom literature is to help human beings learn how to live well. But even more than that, it is an admonition, teaching, if you will, about how to connect your soul 
to your life. So it's not just wisdom from a, a purely intellectual pursuit, it's a holistic kind of journey. So consequently, uh, we're gonna also read through the book of Proverbs this summer, not just the book of Ecclesiastes. So there's some respite just around the corner if you can, if you can make your way through this particular journey as it's recorded by the Koholeth. You come to Proverbs, and Proverbs 9, verse 10 connects it all for us and says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So there's that connection between our spiritual life and what we might call that experiential pursuit of wisdom. However, the book of Ecclesiastes, generally speaking, is favorably disposed toward wisdom. The writer of Ecclesiastes will mention wisdom several times throughout these 12 chapters. And he mentions wisdom from a positive perspective. So for example, if you'll look at chapter seven, verse 12, the Koholeth says, wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. So wisdom has a preserving quality to it, he says. Then in chapter eight, verse one, the Koholeth says, who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face. So wisdom even has some physiological manifestation to it, the writer says. And then chapter nine, verse 13, he tells us a story about a wise person. He says in Ecclesiastes nine, verse 13, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now, there lived in that city a poor but wise, a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. So he says, there's an experience I had where I saw a small community rescued by a wise person. So he um, celebrates wisdom. Now, as I said, the Bible has much to say about it. Some people think Solomon is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. And, you know, I'm fine with that view. There are others who think that this is someone writing in the tradition of Solomon who came along later. I'm also fine with that view because the writer doesn't really tell us specifically who he is. But we do know this about Solomon. You remember the story in 1 Kings 3? God spoke to Solomon in a vision, in a dream, and said, Solomon, what do you want from me? Ask me for it. I will give it to you. And the Bible says Solomon asked for wisdom. He said, Lord, give me a discerning heart so that I can rule over your people. And the Bible says God answered that prayer and he gave Solomon wisdom and a discerning heart. And then God said this, because you didn't ask me for this other stuff, I'm going to give it to you as well. So Solomon became this incredibly blessed man. He got the wise and discerning heart. And he also got the prosperity and the wealth and the influence that he enjoyed as a leader in Israel. And he needed that wisdom to rule Israel well. Unfortunately, his son chose not to use wisdom in his approach to how he ruled over Israel. And consequently, Israel will end up splitting into two nations uh, because of what happened after Solomon. But Solomon, he enjoyed that gift from God. Now, if you want to study wisdom biblically, you have to read Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is the page every biblical scholar points you to if you want to explore the topic of wisdom. Wisdom is presented in a personified, 
poem in Psalm 8. In other words, wisdom speaks in the first person. Then, from a New Testament perspective, New Testament theologians point you to Proverbs 8 as the precursor for understanding the Messiah. And Proverbs 8 is read messianically by New Testament theologians that Jesus will embody this kind of wisdom and he will become the wisest person who has ever lived. Now, here's what's available for me and you, though. You and I can also have wisdom from God. Let let me just read this to you from the book of James. In James chapter 3, James says this, James 3 verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy, selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, in quotes, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But then James 3, verse 17 is the pivotal text for wisdom in the New Testament. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Heavenly wisdom, James says, you can immediately recognize it in a person's life. It's pure It's peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy. I'll go back to what I said a moment ago. Has there ever been a time where we have needed wisdom more than right now? Here's the good news, y'all. If you go back to James 1, verse 5, you know what James says? James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God for it. So let me encourage me and you as the people of God. Let's ask God for wisdom. Because it's something he longs to give us, to impart to us. Heavenly wisdom. You will recognize it in your life. Because the wisdom that does not come from God is easy to spot. In fact, James says it's it's bitter envy, it's selfish ambition. It's evidence of brokenness. But the wisdom of God is pure, peace-loving, considerate, full of mercy, submissive, James says, ask for that. So can I just say to me and you, church, the world needs wisdom. Well, God has promised to give it to us if we ask for it. And it really is a gift from God. Wisdom is something that you gain through life experience. Knowledge plus experience can lead to wisdom. And here's what I tell you about wisdom. It takes a while to develop it. You don't develop wisdom in minutes. You develop wisdom in months, seasons, years. It just takes time. Albert Einstein said, any fool can know the point is to understand. So how would I summarize wisdom? I would put it like this. Wisdom is knowing what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. Wisdom is knowing what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. But you think about that. What if everybody in Arlington knew what to say, when to say it, and how to say it? What if everybody in Arlington knew what to do, how to do, and when to do it? Let let me rephrase it. What if just every Christian in Arlington knew what to say, when to say it, and how to say it? If every Christian in Arlington knew what to do, when to do it, 
and how to do it. Let, let me get even more specific. What if just every Baptist in Arlington just knew what to say, when to say it, and how to say it, or what to do, and when to do it, and how to do it? Can you imagine what a different community we would have? Think about my community, though, and how many times people don't know what to say, they don't know when to say it, and they don't know how to say it, but they say it anyway. And all the people in my community that don't know what to do, they don't know when to do it, and they don't know how to do it, and they do it anyway. And look at the havoc that it creates. It's, it's amazing how the cumulative effect of the lack of wisdom can impact a society. I, I would argue that we are living in the most informed age in all of history. This is, if there's ever been an age of information, this is it. You can know a little bit about everything in this society. But it's not enough to be informed. It's, it's, it's just documented. <laughs> it's not enough to be informed. You and I need to be transformed. We, we need informed people who are transformed people who understand the value and the beauty of wisdom that is gained through experience. Because you see, this writer, he says, I, I decided to look at wisdom and folly, wisdom and foolishness. Well, would y'all not say there's a whole lot of foolishness in this old world? There just is. There, there are just examples of folly everywhere. There were in his world. There are in our world. I, I came across this story and it happened years ago, back in the 1980s, in a town called Arbonne, Switzerland. Maybe you've heard of this couple. I don't know if you ever read this story. Um, it's the story of Franz and Helga Hageman. Their story made the paper. Now, the paper, y'all, for the younger, well, it's not worth, don't worry about it. Um, for those of us who know, it made the paper. Front page, Okay. It's Father's Day today, right? Happy Father's Day, by the way, to all of our daddies. Thank you for the role you play. Um, absolutely. Happy Father's Day, y'all. I'm the beneficiary of having a great father. I told the church this morning at 8.30, we sing how great they are. And I can still hear my daddy singing that. My daddy sang loud. The only keys my daddy had were in his pocket. He didn't know about others and didn't care. But you know what about my daddy? He didn't just sing it. He lived it. And so that made a big difference in, in my life. Okay, where were we? Um, oh, this couple, the Hagemans, Franz and Helga's Father's Day. This dad and mom, they had a grown adult daughter. The dad and mom decided to go on vacation. Franz decided to cancel the vacation without consulting Helga, as I understand it. Now, what did I say about knowing what to say, when to say it, and how to say it? Anyway, he cancels the vacation without telling her. So when it's over, he leaves to go to work. He comes home, and she has put bicarbonate soda in his aquarium, and his incredibly expensive fish collection all dies. And he sees the fish floating on the top of the aquarium. Okay. So before he leaves for work the next morning, he takes $25,000 
worth of her diamond jewelry and puts it down the garbage disposal in the kitchen and leaves her a note to that effect. When he gets home, she has destroyed his very expensive stereo equipment and unplugged it from the house and it's just literally strewn all over the house. When he leaves for work the next morning, he pours liquid bleach on $200,000 worth of her clothes and fur collection in her closet. When he gets home from work later that day, she has poured yellow paint on the hood and the roof of his powder blue Ferrari, as well as inside in the interior. He leaves for work the next morning and on the way out, he puts his foot through her original Picasso that they have hanging in their living room and leaves it on the floor. That afternoon, she sank his yacht. <laughs> Finally, the daughter shows up and says, what are y'all doing? And she calls the family attorney and they are able to somehow strike a certain truce. But four days of foolishness ends up causing incredible, irreparable damage. My point is, folly is everywhere. Wisdom is no joke. So the Koholeth says, okay, I've looked at both. Wisdom's better. <laughs> Duh. Okay, thank you for that powerful. Remember, we're on his bus tour, remember? Thank you for that incredible insight to share with us today. However, true to form, he is not done he wants to talk to us about the great equalizer. So on the one hand, Koholeth celebrates wisdom. It's awesome. It's better. The wise have eyes in their head. It's to be admired. It's to be celebrated, okay? Well, wisdom has been celebrated throughout history, not just by the Koholeth. Uh, there are many folks who have praised and celebrated wisdom, you know, many of you have been to, to Rome, and some of you have been with us on our tour of Rome. Well, whenever we go to Rome, we always go to the Vatican, to St. Peter's Basilica, which is built on Vatican Hill. It is now home to the popes. Used to, the popes lived in the Lateran Palace, which was this beautiful palace on a hill that was given to the church by Constantine in the early fourth century. However, when the popes were taken to Avignon, France, in the 1300s, the Lateran Palace fell into disrepair. And so when the popes returned, they moved outside the walls of the city to the Vatican Hill and built this massive fort, which became the home to the popes. Pope Julius III, well, he was a high Renaissance pope. He decided to have all of his apartments decorated and the place he worshiped decorated. And he also decided to have St. Peter's Basilica or St. Peter's Church torn down and a new one built. So we hired uh, Michelangelo to paint uh, the place where he worshiped. He hired Raphael to paint his apartments where he lived. So let me just show you one of the rooms that Raphael decorated for Pope Julius. When you make your way through the Vatican, it's now a museum. Uh, this is where the Pope used to live. This is Pope Julius's library. This is his study. So he asked Raphael to dedicate his study appropriately. Now it's interesting, we can only see two of the walls here, the two facing walls. 
these four walls together contain what Raphael concluded were the four pillars of reality, the four pillars of truth. One of them is dedicated to literature and poetry. One of them is dedicated to justice. The one on this wall that's facing this way that you can't see is dedicated to theology. It is the disputation of the sacrament. It's a heavenly and earthly scene where the host is being lifted up and is being transubstantiated into the body of Christ. And the one on the far wall there to the right is the celebration of philosophy of wisdom, of science, if you will. So it's a little bit um, of a revolutionary kind of idea or concept that Raphael would be bold enough to place philosophy, wisdom, and, and literature, and justice on the same par with theology. So this was an era of new ideas. It was a, it was a renaissance of thought, if you will, and Raphael is going to celebrate it. But let's do a close-up of the one that you see there on the right. That's the School of Athens. Very famous painting. As I said, it's on the wall of the Pope's library. Underneath here in the original time when Julius lived there, there would have been books just placed uh, on bookshelves all throughout the bottom of, of these walls. But this particular painting is very famous. It's a celebration of wisdom, celebration of philosophy. The greatest and wisest people, according to Raphael, are in this painting. So you see right in the middle, you see a guy in, in, a, in a red cloak and gown or, or, or garb, and you see one in blue. The one on the left in red is, uh, is Plato. It's actually a portrait of Leonardo da Vinci. Cause, so Raphael has some shout-outs to several famous people in this painting And then the one on our right is Aristotle. And you'll notice that Plato has his hand pointing to to the heavens and Aristotle is pointing here to the earth. The reason for that is Plato believed there was a a life better. There was an ideal, if you will, more than what we're able to see. So he's pointing to it. It's called Platonic idealism. Aristotle, however, believed reality was here in the observable part of the world. It's called Aristotelian realism. So you have these two men actually illustrating their different views of ultimate reality. And then if you'll notice, the room is divided in half and you'll see there are the rest of the characters are either on this side or this side. The ones that are on the left, some very famous philosophers and scientists, all of them ascribe to platonic idealism. That's where they're on Plato's side of the room. And then the rest of them who subscribe to Aristotelian realism, they're on the right side of the room. And so you'll see Euclid over here on the right. He's on the floor there. He's mapping out some geometry. Euclid was an Aristotelian. He believed that, that, that math was something that you could measure and observe. But you'll see Pythagoras over here on the left, this other mathematician, he's got the green around his head. He believed there was music and art in math. So he's more of an idealist. So these people are divided. One that's in the foreground there, this kind of looks like he's a brooding figure, was a late addition. Once Raphael finished the painting, he decided to go back and put one more person there. And, uh, and so he goes back and he paints Heraclitus of Ephesus. But Heraclitus of Ephesus, this famous uh, Platonic uh, philosopher, scientist, he is, um, the character that he really draws there is Michelangelo. And you can recognize Michelangelo by the boots that he's wearing. Raphael was mad at Michelangelo because Michelangelo would not let Raphael into the Sistine Chapel to see what he was painting. So Raphael bribed the guards and would sneak in at night and climb up on the ladder. And so some of the characters that are displayed in this have the very same poses as the Sistine Chapel just to let Michelangelo that he know that he knew what was going on. So there was a little bit of a, little bit of a snit going on between these two guys. But the point is, you've got Apollo on the left and Athena on the right. Those two represent realism and idealism. But the point is, Raphael is celebrating human achievement. These are the greatest minds, the wisest people 
who've ever lived. Now, if let's go to the next slide. When you go to the churches in Rome, they all have one of these. The Grim Reaper. This one is from St. Peter in Chains. And it's a massive depiction of the Grim Reaper. It's on, it decorates a whole wall on one side of the church. Most every church in Rome has one. They usually are placed at the exits because the church was wanting to let you know that death was a reality. Now, we've not yet finished all of our decorations in our renovation, and so we're looking for the appropriate Grim Reaper um, representation. We haven't found it yet. Um, but here's what's fascinating, y'all. The Koholeth beat the Roman churches to this because, remember, we're on the bus, He's just taken us a tour, on a tour, of the wisest people who've ever lived. And we've celebrated it. Um, so he's saying, look at this. This is how this person accomplished this. This is the greatest achievement. And it's almost like the coalesce says, now before you get too excited and enamored, let's turn down this street. And we turn down this street with him on his bus. And then we turn down another road. And then the next thing you know, he drives us up into the cemetery. And he says, guess where all these people are? They're dead, and here are their burial sites. And here's what I want you to notice. All those wise people, they're buried in here with all the fools. So what difference does it make, wise or fool? This is where you're all headed, to the cemetery. Everything is meaningless. Wow, thank you. Once again, it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, when I was in college, I, I minored in, in British literature and I just love literature, but y'all remember this poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley, Ozymandias? Do y'all familiar with that poem? It's the story of this guy who's walking through the desert and he sees this massive statue that's fallen over and it's now in complete ruin. So let me read it to you. He says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor, well, those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sand stretched far away. What was Shelley saying was, he says, well, Ozymandias' comment said, look at all my great works and despair because you'll never do better than this. And the guy said, I looked around, all I see is sand <laughs> and a broken statue. In other words, we all die. Coleth says, it gets worse, then you get forgotten. Wow, think about that. Once again, thank you for that word of encouragement. Um, his point is, death is the great equalizer, great and small, wise and foolish. It's everybody's fate. He says, so it's just all meaningless. Wow. Well, I'm gonna say one other thing this morning in closing, and I'm gonna close with what I've said every Sunday morning so far in this series. There is someone wiser than Solomon. I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Young or not. Thomas Young died in 1829. He was a British polymath. What that means is, is that he made notable contributions in multiple scientific endeavors. He's one of the most famous scientists who's ever lived. 
As a child, he taught himself Hebrew. By the age of 13, he had read the first 30 chapters of the Bible in Hebrew. In 1801, he, he was appointed a professorship of natural philosophy at the Royal Institution. He delivered about 60 lectures a year there. He then graduated from medical school at the University of Cambridge. And he became a brilliant and accomplished scientist. He made notable contributions to the field of vision. He studied eyes. He invented the, the idea, or at least he discovered astigmatism. He postured a theory of light. He opposed Isaac Newton, solid mechanics, energy, physiology, language, musical harmony, Egyptology. He was the first person to translate hieroglyphics from the Rosetta Stone. When he died, what was written about him was this. It says that the last person who knew everything has died. He was the true last know-it-all. Thomas Young. However, here's what I would say to you this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. There is actually one who knows it all. And he is the wisest one who's ever lived. Let me read to you about him. Colossians 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Brothers and sisters, the wisest man who has ever lived is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And with all due respect, Koholeth, Jesus also died. But praise his name, he lives and will never die again. He is the true wise one and he is the one who knows it all. I would say, let's you and I give our lives to him. Let's pray together. <clears throat> well, Father, we, we do thank you today for this time that we can gather, worship, live in community, study your word, pray together, fellowship together, celebrate ordinances like baptism, sing praises to your name. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you that we can be a part of this place, be a part of this church and may the beauty of that never be lost on us. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll find us to be wise people. And I trust that in our humility, we will seek that wisdom from you. And that we will live it out and we will see it evidenced in our lives. Pure, considerate, and submissive, full of mercy, peacemaking. May it be so in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.